Once upon a time, there was a family who loved each other very much. The parents adored their three children, and the children adored their parents, and all of them adored one another. They would gather round for family time, and they would play and play with imagination and creativity, with this song of laughter and love. And the parents loved the children very much. They gave them toys to play with. And the children would play together with their dolls, their action figures, their bouncing balls, and of course their costumes for dress up. And the parents joined in and they would all play together. They went on family adventures. They would play, make-believe. They laughed and loved all the more. When the parents were away at work, the children would play with their toys and, and remember and know just how much their parents loved them. And when the parents would come back home, they would all play together. There was laughter and love. There was playfulness and joy. But after a while, the children began to pay a little more attention to the toys than they did to their parents or to each other. And when the parents would get back home from work, the children no longer ran to greet them. Instead, would just stay there playing with their toys. And anytime one of them wanted a toy that the other one had, they would go up and just take it for themselves start fighting one another's. And so where there was once laughter and love, there was now shouting and fighting. So the parents decided to take away the toys. And so the toy chest, once filled with action figures and dolls, now stood empty. And the closet where the capes and the hoods and the hats and the masks used to hang for, for dress-up was now bare. And so with the toys gone and the costumes cleared, the children found themselves wandering around in an empty house, not knowing what to do. Because it didn't even really feel like home anymore to them. They didn't know how to play anymore. And so again, when the parents got home, they gathered the children up and they said, do you want to play together? The toys and costumes may be gone, but laughter and love can still be our song. Well, the oldest child answered and, and said, no, I've decided that I am too old to play and stormed off. And then the middle child began crying and said, but how can we play without our toys? I want things to be the way they were before. And then the youngest child came up to the parents, unsure of what to do, but gave them a hug. That child had grown up with toys all around, didn't really know what to do or to expect without them, but looked to the parents and waited for their cue. Let's go outside, the parents said. It's a beautiful day. We don't need those old toys to play. So without any toys, and beyond the house walls, 
there echoed the song of laughter and love once more. The end. All right, now who is this story about? I think in some ways it could be about the people that we read about last week in Jeremiah chapter 7. If you were here, you might remember Jeremiah standing outside the temple, calling a nation to repent of idolatry and to worship God instead in justice and righteousness rather than empty ritual. And he warned them of the coming exile, right? He warned them that the temple would be destroyed and they would be sent away. You see, the people of Israel are the children. God is the parent. And the temple was one of their toys. Originally, it was a great gift that God had given to them. A place where they could be together, where they could experience and see the love of God, and where they, they could be a family, right? But the people began to value the temple more than God, and they turned it into an idol. So God took the temple away from them. And without the temple, they found themselves like those children wandering around an empty house. It felt strange and barren. They found themselves in exile. But remember, last week, God continued desiring to dwell with them. He continued to pursue them. Right? He had taken away the toys because they'd become a distraction. But just like the parents in the story, God still wanted to play. So this story could be about them, but I think it could also be about the church today. Right? You know, many of you might think back or look on a day when the church had a lot of toys to play with. Right? There, there may have been great big revivals happening whenever everyone seemed to go to church. It was just commonplace. But, but culture can shift and change, and it feels quite different. Perhaps even this church can think about some of the past few decades, right? I mean, this community has a long history to it. And I know that many of you have been here, well, far longer than I have, right? So, so I don't necessarily have much uh, experience to say, but what I can do is, is reflect a little bit. Because from what I understand, over the years, you have all seen quite a lot of transition in this community. Some of you have seen a time when there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were part of this church Whenever there was a busy children's wing, an active teen center. You've seen ministry programs, special productions. Did there used to be a church bus? Did I hear about that? Well, yeah, okay, right? So there were a lot of toys to play with, essentially. But, but after all of that, after years of transition and change, sometimes... 
things might feel a bit more like that children's empty toy chest or empty costume closet. And sometimes, like that middle child, it may be easy to remember old times and think, I just want things to be the way they were. But it's actually not a bad thing that the toys are gone. Because just like the parents in the story, I think God has been teaching us new ways to play. Instead of saying, staying inside and, and playing with toys, God has brought us outside to cross the street, partner for peace, discover his kingdom. But it's not just toys that are gone. There are also people who are gone. Some probably have left peacefully or practically. Others have have gone maybe storming off like the child in the story and left broken relationships behind. And again, I'm only speaking about a history that I have heard about. But many of you have, have lived and experienced much of this transition. And so whether it's feeling like a child wandering through a house that feels empty, or if it's remembering relationships that have since been lost. I think that there is much cause to carry some measure of grief as a community. And so far, I've I've reflected on on this particular congregation. I've reflected a little bit on on the culture at large. Uh, But, you know, if, if... you're new to this congregation, as I am, right? I'm sure that many of us have still had cause for grief when it comes to our experience with the church. Experiences of loss, experiences of doubt, times when the church simply wasn't what it ought to be. And so, the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah. We've been talking about his experience of exile. And we've been having this conversation. And and a few weeks ago, we also started having a conversation around exile in, in the Bible class. We've been talking about this there as well. And so when we kicked off that conversation, I asked the class to share an experience that they had had of being a stranger, of kind of feeling uh, on the outside. And, and I asked everyone to share, what did that experience feel like? And how did you respond to feeling that way? And I wrote this all up on the board. I think I have a picture of the board from that day. So, so the items here on the left are what it felt like to experience being a stranger. And the words on the right are, are the words that we came up with for how we often respond when we feel that way. And so on the left, you'll see there's shock, there's fear, there's exclusion, there's jealousy, there's anxiety. And on the right, there are words like denial, judgment, pushback, defensiveness, and withdrawal. And we looked at all of this, and and we said that this is a basic sketch of what it's like to be in exile. And it was a great conversation that we had that day, brainstorming and wondering about all of this. And and the reason why I share this with you 
is that after class and after service, Caitlin and I were, were walking back through that room, and, and she uh, looked at the board, and being trained in psychology and counseling, said, you know, this looks like a conversation about stages of grief. And I said, hmm, I didn't notice that. But it does. These stages of grief, denial, anger, anxiety, depression. And I began to realize that grief is a core experience of being in exile. Grief is one of the ways that we respond in exile. And this is exactly what we see Jeremiah go through. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. And as you're turning there, I'll I'll just remind you, you know, a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, we saw Jeremiah's call as a prophet in exile. And his call was to pluck up, to overthrow, but also to build and to plant. Right? This is what God calls him to. And he sets off on this journey of a prophet in exile. And, and he brings words that challenge and pluck up, but also words that, that build and that plant. Last week, we saw his temple sermon in chapter 7, where he told the people that the temple would be destroyed and they would be sent into exile. And so this week, we pick it up in chapter 8, and we see Jeremiah's response of grief. And so hear the word of the Lord, beginning in 8, verse 18. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a band of traitors. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting us and guiding us as your people in the midst of exile, facing grief, among many things. God, I ask as we consider the words of this text 
that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So so as we reflect on this passage today, I, I just want to consider what all does this tell us about grief? About grieving and responding with grief in exile. And so this past week, as I read commentaries about this text, I noticed that many of them were kind of unsure of who the primary voice in the passage is. Right? Who is it that is grieving? You know, some say that these are Jeremiah's own kind of personal responses and reflections, grieving over his people, over the loss of the land and the temple. Some say that these are, are God's words and feelings. God grieving over his children. And another just kind of held those two together and just said that the pathos of God and the prophet are indistinguishable, right? They, they are one and the same. That the Jeremiah's grief and God's grief are intermixed and interspersed throughout the passage. And I think that's true. So is it Jeremiah grieving or is it God grieving? Yes. And the people are grieving too. You see, in these opening verses, we see that grief is a communal thing. Our culture may try to privatize it or therapize it, but grief is at home in the midst of community. We work through our grief in conversation together. And that's precisely what we see in the opening verses. In verse 18, we have this voice, God or Jeremiah or both of them, who says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. And then in verse 19, the people say, they ask, is is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? And then God asks, why have they provoked me to anger? with their images and their foreign idols. And then in verse 20, the people say, again, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And finally, in verse 21, we have again this voice, be it Jeremiah or God, saying, for the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. You see, these opening verses in this passage are a conversation. They're this exchange of grief between Jeremiah, God, and the people. Grief is always communal. Right? Losing a loved one does not just affect that person's spouse or their children. It affects the whole family. It affects the whole web of relationships that person was a part of. Or losing a job doesn't just affect the person who lost it. It affects their family. It affects their co-workers. It affects the people in the place where they uh, will someday work, their, their future co-workers, right? Losing the temple was an incredibly communal 
experience of grief for the people. It didn't just affect the priests who worked there. It didn't just affect the people who lived in and around Jerusalem. It affected the entire religious community. And it shook their faith. And so as we consider this communal aspect of grief, I want to consider that for us as well. Right? Each of us has our own things that we grieve, that we carry with us, but what kinds of things do we have to grieve as a community together? What kinds of things do we have to grieve as 21st century followers of Jesus? What kinds of things do we have to grieve as the Church of Christ in federal way? What kinds of things do we have to grieve as God's people in exile? You know, I, I can think of a few things, but I, I don't have all of the shared history that many of you do together. And if we're going to keep asking this question that I have put before us as we've been going through Jeremiah, how do we live as God's people in exile? Then at some point, we're going to have to face grief. And so how do we do this? Maybe some of you are very good at grieving. But grief is hard. In fact, grief is naturally elusive. If any of you are familiar uh, with those stages of grief that I mentioned earlier, one of the first ones is usually denial. One of the first ways that we cope with grief is by denying that there is anything to grieve. And by denying that, that anything that, that has changed or that anything is different. And now, there, there's something natural about this process of denial. Right? I can say in, in the weeks after my mother died, I would often find myself reaching for my phone, thinking to call her, to tell her something, to share something with her, only to remember that, oh, I, I can't do that anymore. You know, my habitual impulses still had this kind of denial that they were working through. I hadn't adapted to that, that new reality. You know, but if, if this had persisted, right, if, if I did call her and leave her messages, if I sent her texts, if I started talking about her as if she were still living, that would be a real psychological concern, Right? That would, be, that would be worrying. And yet, we see churches respond to grief and change with this kind of denial all the time. Living the way things were, not the way things are. Churches that are stuck in their ways, that are ruthless with their rules, that are unwilling to adapt. Churches that still have their red shag carpet and dusty pews. And no, that's not the point. Decorations are not the point. But you know what I mean, right? There are communities that can often just, in some ways, live in denial. 
and never worked through their grief. And that's the thing. Grief does take work. We see this in in chapter 9, verse 1. Jeremiah says, Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. This is one of those verses where Jeremiah gets his reputation as the weeping prophet. And yet, here he's actually admitting that it's very difficult to weep. Right? He doesn't say, oh, how my head is a spring of water, and my eyes are fountain of tears. Instead, he says, oh, that my head were, that it could be a spring of water, that my eyes could be a fountain of tears. Right? He says, oh, I wish I had access to my grief. I wish that I could cry and weep all day and night for my people, but, but this is hard work. Sometimes it's hard to, to reach and access those tears. You see, the picture here that Jeremiah is painting is, is one of a deep spring of water coming up from the earth. That word fountain can also be translated as a well which goes deep down into the earth to bring forth water. This weekend, Caitlin and I were spending some time with friends who have uh, some parents who do some work building houses. And one of the very first things they have to do when they're going to be constructing is get a permit and dig a well. And that's hard work. I'm sure they hire someone to do it, but digging a well is hard work work. And that is the image here. That in order to grieve, we need to dig deep into ourselves. In order to grieve, we need to chip away at that sort of external facade of denial that insists that everything's okay, everything's going to be the way it was before. Nothing has changed. In order to grieve, we need to get under the surface where that pain of loss resides, where our grief is accessible. And that is where the tears can begin to flow. Now, things like self-reflection and therapy are are really helpful and often necessary ways to dig into and work through that kind of grief. But again, what does this process of grieving look like in community? Not just as individuals, but as a people together. I think it looks like building trust with each other. It looks like having vulnerable conversations with each other, just like we saw in the first few verses that we read. I think it looks like asking questions and really listening. Did you notice in those opening verses 
There are multiple questions. The people are asking questions of God. God is asking questions of the people. Grief is an honest and a vulnerable conversation that is built on trust. This is how we work through grief and how we begin healing from it. Now we've talked about how grief is essentially a communal process. But sometimes grief also needs a little bit of space too. In 9.1 we read, Oh, that my head were a spring of water that I might weep for my people. And then in verse 2 we see, Oh, that I had a lodging place in the desert that I might get away from them. Right? And this is a really honest thing to say. Because sometimes grief does need space. Sometimes that work of digging really deeply into ourselves, both individually and communally, can be exhausting. And we just need some rest. That's okay. Jeremiah weeps for his people, but he also wants to get away from them sometimes. Grief takes work, but grief also needs space. And yet, here's the challenge sometimes having space is necessary for our healing, but other times, Making that space just becomes a crutch for staying in denial. Sometimes it just becomes a way to get stuck in our grief. And so we have to discern what is needed in order to work through our grief together. Otherwise, we'll get stuck and end up in just a dead-end kind of grief. And Jeremiah actually tried this, right? He tried running away from his people, and he even tried to resist his call. A little bit later on in the book, in chapter 20, verse 9, he says, If I say, I will not mention God or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary holding it in, and I cannot. You see, unhealthy grief can lead to a dead end. It can lead to just being stuck in that place of denial. But healthy grief, communal grief, honest, deep, vulnerable, hard-working grief always goes somewhere. It doesn't end in a dead end. It always goes somewhere. Like this burning fire that needs to be let out. Or like that flowing water that gushes up. Grief always goes somewhere. Here's what I mean by that. Though grief is often a response to the loss of something, grief also points toward the presence of something. So though we grieve death, that grief actually points toward the reality of resurrection. 
Though someone may grieve the loss of a job, that grief actually points toward the dignity that that person has to contribute good work to the world. Though a church may grieve transition, change, division, that grief points to the reality that God is at work among his people, that we are called to be that unified body of Christ in the world. And when grief points toward a greater reality, it is no longer dead end grief, but it's grief that goes somewhere. And in this way, I think grief actually becomes some sort of subversive kind of celebration. Hear me out. Grieving death is a subversive way of celebrating life. Grieving the past is a subversive way of celebrating our hope for the future. Grief and celebration actually go together. They very well might be different sides of the same coin. I think this is very much like Jeremiah's call back in chapter 1. His call to pluck up and overthrow is connected to his call to build and to plant. These are the two-sided coin of grief and celebration. And so as, as we draw toward a close, I want to bring forth that question again that I'm holding in front of us. How are we to live as God's people in exile? And at least one of the ways that we're called to respond in exile is to honestly face and work through our grief. So what does that look like for this community? What are the ways that that we can build trust in order to have these conversations of honest vulnerability, to work through our grief in community? What are the things that we need to grieve? Where are the places where we are living in denial? How can we let out that fire in our bones and that water from the well? And if grief always goes somewhere, I wonder, where might our grief be leading us? You see, I believe that that there are changes, transitions, and losses to grieve, both as the worldwide church as well as this church in federal way. But underneath all of that grief, there is a subversive celebration taking place. There is a truth that we are proclaiming in all of it, 
And we actually do this every week when we come to the table to remember Jesus' death. It's a place of grief. And yet, as we gather there, we celebrate his resurrection and look toward his return. Grieving, as we are in exile, is a subversive way of celebrating what is our true home. And so as we continue in exile, may we also continue as we pray to see God's kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.